Welcome to Difference Makers, where we bring you profound and enlightening conversations with remarkable people who make a difference through innovative and inspiring charity work. On this podcast, you'll hear the incredible stories of real-life Difference Makers, learn about the worthy causes and charities they support, and discover how charity work changes lives for the better. I think it's just about trying to get the general population to understand that you know lots of these conditions as well are kind of hidden illnesses and it's kind of something that's been a big conversation point probably over the last sort of 10 years or so that these sort of hidden disabilities and hidden illnesses are really difficult because you don't you don't know I guess like my condition is kind of half hidden half not and there's so many conditions out there you know rare and, and sort of not rare but just kind of chronic conditions that are hidden and it's just a thing about bringing change that you can't always see the battles that someone's going through just because it's kind of not visible from the outside. I'm Aldous Harris, and in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with David Rose with Rare Revolution Magazine, who's making a difference by giving a voice for people living with rare disorders. Well, good morning, David. Welcome to Difference Makers. Really excited to have you here with us this morning. Hi, Al. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. And for our listeners out there, we're talking uh, across the pond. I'm on the uh, in the U.S. on the east coast of the Atlantic, and you're in the U.K. Is yeah. that correct? In in London? Uh, just on the edge of London, about about twenty five miles from London. Wonderful. Well, thanks again. And um, you know, I would love to, for you to share a little bit about you know to get started. Rare Revolution Magazine. Yeah, sure. So Rare Revolution magazine is a rare disease magazine based in the UK. So it was founded by two sisters five years ago now. So one of them's son has a, an ultra rare skin condition called xeroderma pigmentosum. Uh, they've been running a patient group for I think about the last seven years now. And then obviously a few years ago decided that there wasn't a rare disease magazine that existed. So that's why they set it up. Uh, and I've been working for them for just over three years now. Uh, yeah, really enjoying it. And is that magazine, it's out of the UK then, and it is online? Yeah, so it's a digital magazine. So um, every quarter, a new edition comes out. So kind of the magazine, we kind of split it kind of into two. So half of the editions are around talking points, so things like gene therapy. We had ones on transition, so like transition from pediatric to adult care. And then the other half of the magazine kind of editorial themes tend to be on kind of condition or groups of condition specific. So we've had rare epilepsies, rare cancer, rare kidney conditions, that kind of thing. And are most of the people who are contributing to the magazine, are they patients or are they doctors and researchers? It's, uh, it's a real mix. So it's kind of every different rare disease stakeholder out there. Uh, obviously, kind of the two the two sort of main groups of people, obviously, are patients and people that belong to patient groups and charities and obviously individuals living with rare condition, sometimes sort of siblings or other parents and you know people in relationships with someone with a rare disease have also contributed. Obviously, a big group of our contributors are industry, so kind of rare disease and biotech. And then we have some uh, kind of contributions from medical students and other kind of researchers and scientists and medical device companies sort of in the rare disease and, and disability space. So the contributions are coming really from across across the gamut, like various different entities and individuals. Yeah, and it's, um, yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's kind of a, a real mix uh, and obviously kind of a global audience as well. So obviously we're based in the UK, but obviously one of the advantages of it being a digital magazine, uh, and obviously it's free to access and it's, you know, there's no paywall. So obviously anyone can read it kind of anywhere in the world. Yeah, before we get too far into it, can you just share with our audience of how they can access Rare Revolution magazine? 
Yes, uh, just really simple. Obviously, you can you can kind of find us on all different social media channels. Uh, the website is literally just rarerevolutionmagazine.com. And then the sort of the tab in the middle is back issues. And obviously, you can access all of the editions that we've done so far for free. Okay, that's great. So you work with Rare Revolution Magazine, and you've been with them for several years. My understanding is there was a, there was a specific reason you were attracted to Rare Revolution. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So obviously I have a, a rare disease. So uh, my background, uh, you know, I studied economics at university. I kind of wanted to work in finance and it didn't really kind of work out uh, kind of due to my health and sort of other different reasons. But anyway, that didn't really work out. I tried a few different things kind of over the years and as always kind of my, my own health complications and the sort of day-to-day living uh, of living with a rare disease obviously it's complicated. It's you know, lots of different medical appointments, it's surgeries, it's waking up feeling okay one day and then terrible the next and it's very unpredictable so you know kind of career wise I found it very frustrating kind of in my early sort of early to mid 20s and then obviously kind of came uh, involved in, in rare disease so I can kind of come back to this but I also volunteer for a really famous hospital in the UK which is called Great Ormond Street Hospital a really famous paediatric hospital. I'm sure some of your listeners would have heard of it before. Sure. Spent a lot of my time there growing up as a child and a teenager. Uh, really wanted to give back. So, you know, I was volunteering for them for the last sort of seven years now. Did a few different projects with them. And then kind of uh, started, that's kind of how the sort of public speaking side of my life came about. Um, and then kind of became more involved in rare disease because of that. And then obviously started to go to rare disease events. You know, I lived in Cambridge for a long time. And obviously that's a big rare disease hub in the UK. Kind of, yeah, just kind of ingrained myself in the rare disease industry. And then obviously when the magazine was hiring someone, um, that was absolutely perfect to me. I applied for the job and I got it. So yeah, very, very pleased to be there. That's wonderful. Before Rare Revolution filled this, I guess, filled this this void, was there anything else out there? Were there any other magazines, publications? Because quite frankly, as you know, my, my story, my history, I have a niece with a rare disease. And um, I think, I don't know of too many other resources that are available. Obviously, there's great ways to communicate with other people through social media, but Mm -hmm. an actual publication that really is dedicated and devoted to raising awareness like this, I don't know of too many out there. Yeah, there isn't really like another rare disease sort of specific magazine. There's obviously different pharmaceutical publications. There obviously are disability magazines and things. So there's like a crossover from both of them, I guess. But Mm -hmm. um, in terms of sort of rare disease specific and kind of for patients, we're like one of the first ones really for that. Uh, obviously, like you've kind of already alluded to, social media is obviously really important. Um, you know, lots of, you know, kind of depending on the different platforms, you know, Instagram and, and Facebook have huge rare disease communities, whether that's on Facebook groups and, and forums and things for individuals and maybe parents to kind of communicate ideas and, you know, who trying to find the best treatment and the best doctors for that condition. Instagram, so I, I kind of use Instagram from my own kind of, rare disease advocacy as well as you know using it for the magazine but um yeah from instagram there's you know there's huge patient population on there all different kind of rare conditions but you know everyone's supportive of each other and it's it's, you know it's interesting to learn about other rare conditions i think that uh so much you see on social media you realize that you know you've mentioned uh your niece has a rare disease obviously it's completely different to my rare disease but there's always a crossover on everything whether that's kind of experiences you've had with you know trying to navigate the health system or going through education or you know all sorts of things there's there's always a crossover so you can have two completely different rare conditions but there's still a lot of things that you would have had in common kind of over the years 
Yeah, that's interesting. So that's one of the things about that intrigues me about Rare Revolution magazine is it's not focused on one particular area. They're taking this community, but it's funny in a lot of ways. I don't know that it was a community before. I think Rare Revolution is in a lot of ways creating a community, which I think is a really beautiful thing. I know with certain rare diseases, it affects such a small percentage of the population that the community yeah. <laughs> of support must be very small. So Rare Revolution is creating a great great and significant community of supporters yeah thank you yeah, thank you very much that's a, that's a really nice compliment to hear and you know, i hope that's you know mag- the magazine is doing that i think it's like you've kind of said you know there's lots of different you know patient groups and support groups and social media platforms for kind of condition specific so whether it's on hemophilia or ataxia or you know all the other different rare diseases that are out there but you know to we kind of cover like you know through the magazine and through the contributions we kind of cover you know as many different rare diseases as possible obviously you know kind of due to the nature of the prevalence of different rare diseases so there's some of you know like haemophilia for example is a it's not common but it's a, it's a more relatively common rare disease and obviously you get these ultra rare conditions which you know don't you know things like haemophilia are kind of known in the sort of the wider society and things like cystic fibrosis people have heard of that whereas you know these really unusual kind of genetic conditions you know people in the other societies don't really understand or probably haven't come across them before unless you've kind of you know got someone in the family with that condition so i think that the magazine hopefully gives a voice to people with these especially with these kind of ultra rare diseases which don't seem to get the same kind of media attention or thing you know awareness you know the other rare diseases might There was something I saw on the uh, Rare Revolution website. It said, to bring about a dramatic and wide-reaching change in conditions and attitudes for the rare disease community. And then it said, it's time to turn the tide. And I thought that was really uplifting. And I think it's, obviously, there's this raising awareness piece about each specific rare disorder that you focus on, but there's also just changing the mindset of people. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, well, um, I'll, I'll pass on <laughs> the, the compliments to Edison. I think she came up with that tagline. So I think it's, you know, kind of from from my perspective and I guess hopefully from the magazine as well, I think it's just to try and bring about change, you know, not only within the rare disease community, but also for the, you know, the wider population. You know, many, you know, I've kind of briefly touched upon it, but, you know, many people with a rare disease you know, that are navigating the normal kind of things that anybody else without living with a rare condition would go through. So whether that's going through education or going through, you know, employment, I mean, you know, I, you know, I've had in my battles kind of navigating the health system, education, work, I found things really difficult. And I think it's just getting people to understand, not, you can't expect everybody to understand every different rare disease because it's, you know, that's not realistic. You know, I've been working in rare disease for a few years and I can't name all the 7,000 plus rare diseases. But I think it's just about trying to get the general population to understand that, you know, lots of these conditions as well are kind of hidden illnesses. And it's kind of something that's been a big conversation point probably over the last sort of 10 years or so that these sort of hidden disabilities and hidden illnesses are really difficult because you don't, you don't know. I guess like my condition is kind of half hidden, half not. And there's so many conditions out there, you know, rare and, and sort of not rare, but just kind of chronic conditions that are hidden. And it's just a thing about bringing change that you can't always see the battles that someone's going through just because it's kind of not visible from the outside. You know, I think that's a really important point. And, and that's why I think it's so important. We talk about often in today's society of bringing different voices, different people of different backgrounds, mm-hmm. people with different experiences into the fold so that we can learn from one another. And I think that's a really important message. But sometimes 
the rare the rare disease the rare disorder community is left out and and for me as an advocate for my niece and obviously what you're doing with rare revolution magazine i think it's it's really wonderful to advocate for this community because they deserve a seat at the table yeah and even more than that we need them at the table we need this community teaching us we need to learn from them we need to collaborate and communicate and i think we we can benefit tremendously from that uh, i guess that broader tapestry bringing different groups in and learning from one another yeah definitely i think um to kind of touch upon a few different points i think kind of going back to social media as well social media is a great way for kind of individuals or groups to get kind of awareness you know especially with you know every most rare diseases have like an awareness day or an awareness month in the calendar and something that we do at the magazine every tuesday we kind of open up our social media channels so that charities and patient groups can you know use our social media platforms to talk about either like an event they've got coming up or use it for the kind of awareness day for that condition i think it's just really important that as many people see things you know social media is again like i say really important to try and get the voice out there certainly in the uk i think that possibly obviously the kind of rare disease policy and things that happen here and obviously i know there's rare disease policy everywhere but i think that kind of rare disease maybe is getting you know more of a seat at the table i think possibly that you know like things at workplaces and education i mean kind of i've had my grievances with, with it before but i think that possibly we're getting a tiny bit better at kind of dealing with kind of chronic illnesses and rare diseases but there's still probably quite a long way to go yeah i agree with you i think we have a long way to go but yes we have made strides and i think things are on the right track mm-hmm. so i'm i'm excited with the positive signs that i've seen yeah, yeah i think that obviously you know it's kind of hard to avoid talking about covid at the moment because it's you know it's it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's there and it's something to talk about because it does affect rare disease but i think covid has made people that are healthy possibly understand a bit more about kind of rare disease and chronic illnesses if that makes sense because you know not not so much for me with my condition but certainly lots of people that i've come across in rare disease you know they've been obviously they've been shielding for you know lots of the last few months due to covid um, but actually, you know, lots of people with with rare and chronic illnesses actually have always been shielding, if that makes sense, like things, conditions, you know, like things like ME and chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, people with those kind of conditions, you know, they're, they're not leaving the house that much anyway because of the exhaustion, the condition. And I think that COVID maybe has opened people's eyes up that are healthy to understand that actually people, you know, when when the kind of gates open a bit more and we can do a few more things again, Lots of people will go back to normal, but there will be lots of people that, you know, won't not won't go back to normal, but they they won't be going back to what everybody thinks they will. I think a lot of people forget that, you know, COVID has had a huge impact on people living with uh, different health conditions. But also this is kind of normality for lots of people with a rare disease that they can't leave the house very often or, you know, then they're used to being inside due to their conditions. I think just I think COVID has really hopefully opened people's eyes to to certainly with different, you know, different health conditions. So when you look at different issues of the magazine and you're reading about these stories, obviously you live with an ultra rare disease, but as you mentioned, you don't know all of them. There's so (laughs) many and you probably spent a lifetime learning and researching, but are you taking things from these stories and the experiences that you're learning about 
And is it helping you? Or I'm sure it's opening your eyes as well. Yeah, I know. It's, um, it's a really good point because uh, just to kind of a, a small bit of context about my rare condition, I think there's there's meant to be about 20 people globally living with the condition I've met kind of through uh, social media. I've met about six or seven different guys uh, with the condition, but it's not really a kind of, there's no patient community as such. There's no uh, there's no patient groups, there's no charity or anything. So I mean, it's, it's a very kind of uh, like fragmented society, I guess. The Through the magazine, you know, I've been fortunate enough, through, obviously through the magazine and through kind of other work that I do in charity, um, you know, I've met, you know, probably thousands of people now living with all sorts of different rare conditions, whether they're rare or ultra rare or, or just not rare disease, are just kind of chronic conditions, long-term conditions. I mean, like, you know, I've kind of, touched upon it already but you can have two different conditions that are completely different on paper but you'll definitely have some of the same sort of battles and issues that you but you know that you've both faced along the years and you know I've met lots of great people from all different places literally from all over the world you know I'm very lucky that through my work at the magazine and you know for other sort of rare disease engagements that I've got you know I've met some really interesting people very inspiring people met people have done so much and you know like I've just looked I can't even think of all the examples there's so many but lots of different kind of you know rare disease parents that have raised millions of dollars for different charities which is fantastic and you know just people sharing their stories people doing all sorts of stuff people taking part in research just kind of doing anything they can to kind of make a difference in rare disease and obviously all the fantastic uh, medical professionals that are out there patient groups you know very lucky that I've had uh, the privilege of meeting all these people because if I would have carried on working in finance or something I probably wouldn't have met them so you know when like, my life took a different direction kind of like working and and having a involvement in the sort of charity side of health and rare disease but uh, I wouldn't change it for the world like it's it's definitely kind of sculpted me and I, I I try and learn from all the different experiences and people that I've met obviously kind of before COVID uh, we used to go to lots of different conferences and for work and obviously from a personal level I used to speak at lots of different conferences through charities and all sorts of different things but you know I've really missed kind of that face-to-face contact and meeting different advocates and, and professionals kind of out there obviously there's been lots of different virtual conferences and webinars over the last few months as a way of kind of still being able to do that during COVID and hopefully they, they all kind of resume at some point and, you know I'm really you know I'm definitely an extrovert I can't wait to get, get out again and <laughs> kind of connect with other people in the rare disease community because obviously it's as a collective community it's it's massive obviously all the individuals itself are rare um, but collectively it's not rare if that makes sense I think it's if you added every person globally living with a rare disease I think it's the third or fourth biggest country that it would make up so when you think wow. of, when you think about it in that way it's it's very different but it's certainly obviously individually they're, they're all very rare in their own right but as a collective it's very different yeah just just really lucky to you know have met so many interesting people along the way and hope that continues. That's really cool. So you you've met these amazing people, you're learning their stories, you're being inspired by them and you are inspiring others by sharing your experiences. So I think that's really kind of brings it full circle and it's a really great message. If you wouldn't mind, can you talk specifically about your condition? Maybe talk a little bit about the history 
of how you were diagnosed and what what a normal day looks like for you. It's probably not a normal day, but <laughs> what a day looks like for you. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I have something called occipital horn syndrome. It used to be kind of considered uh, a variant of something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a rare disease, but over the last kind of decade or so, it's becoming more, more well known and kind of better recognized by medical professionals. The diagnosis rate is a lot higher now. Um, it seems to be that a lot of people were kind of misdiagnosed along the way, but kind of occipital horn syndrome, the, the kind of uh, variant that I have, um, is a connective tissue disorder like uh, Ehlers-Danlos, but it's also a copper deficiency. So it's a mutation in a gene which is called ATP7A. So I was diagnosed that uh, kind of officially six years ago. So um, just to kind of, uh, I won't go on for hours and hours, but when I was three, um, I had a kind of rough diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos as a child. So obviously they were very close uh, with the actual condition. Um, that was at Great Ormond Street, obviously many years ago now. Uh, kind of early 90s, you know, it wasn't so important at the time really to have a diagnosis. You know, as a kind of uh, a toddler and a young uh, young kid, I was really unwell, obviously. had lots of different surgeries and lots of different kind of medical interventions, clinic appointments all the time. And I think it's probably with quite a lot of people actually with a rare disease. My health often looks like a kind of, uh, like a, a like a chart really. It kind of goes up and down kind of all the time. It's very sort of unpredictable. But you know, kind of uh, going back to sort of six years ago, I had the, the proper diagnosis through genetics testing. So kind of as I as I grew older, um, I didn't really quite fit the kind of Ehlers-Danlos criteria anymore. So obviously I had, you know, all the kind of the joint issues and the connective tissue. Obviously, I think, I think people think of collagen as being just, you know, just on the outside. So like the stretchy skin and the kind of the sort of weak joints and being able to dislocate very easily. You know, that's very common in Ehlers-Danlos, but, but I think people forget that actually it's internally as well because obviously your connective tissue is everywhere. So I have, and obviously like many people with uh, Ehlers-Danlos have, also have lots of problems with their bladder, their kidney, lots of the different kind of comorbidities of having um, a connective tissue disorder or something called POTS that's relatively common for those sort of conditions. So I have that that kind of affects your blood pressure and, and your pulse. So yeah, I had you know, lots of different things. Um, kind of going on I think it was the reason why I had the testing really was just because I didn't really quite fit the bill um, anymore they, you know, they tried a few different things uh, looked at a few different areas there's something sort of linked loosely to Ellis Dan I think called Marfan syndrome but that's kind of actually what some NBA basketball players might have because obviously it's linked to kind of gigantism um, mm. I definitely don't have that I'm, I'm five for eight so I definitely in no danger <laughs> of having anything to do with my height so we had yeah we had a few different ideas or sorry the doctors had a few different ideas and they came to, to looking for all the different genes and they, they identified the correct gene so it's this ATP7A um, and it's called occipital horn syndrome I think the I quite often get asked, you know, does the diagnosis like matter? So I think it's quite an interesting question because I think whatever way I think of it, it does still help having a name for something and especially the actual specific name, obviously for a genetics test, um, it definitely does help. In terms of the kind of uh, the second part of that, probably not so much because in not every rare disease obviously has a cure. You might know the name for it. Um, mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean there's a cure or any research or any clinical trials, any real kind of specialist interest from medical professionals. So although I've got the name for something, obviously that's useful. But the sort of the, the second part to it is, 
like where do I go from here because there's no like there's no real outcome of actually having the condition the only the only kind of from my perspective at, at my current viewpoint it is helpful now because obviously if I were to start a family I would know that I'm you know I know that I have a genetic condition it kind of might make a difference for that side of things and it's just useful mm-hmm. to know from a kind of a broader picture but yeah I think it's a, it's an interesting one having you know being diagnosed with something but then not really knowing you know my kind of care doesn't really change I'm still being treated the same way as I was before I had that if that makes sense so um you know all of the, of the kind of pathways that somebody you know with a connective tissue disorder was going down that's that's what I'm still doing really yeah, it's not as though they said, oh, we have the diagnosis and here's the the, the pill, <laughs> or we have right. the diagnosis and here's the procedure. But I, I do agree with you. Having the diagnosis gives you a better understanding of your condition, prognosis, and hopefully in time, I would imagine there's research being done. Where are they with that, with the, with the researching of it? And is there a, a plan to, I know with my niece's condition, there is, there's a plan. And mm-hmm. I think it probably, maybe because it, it affects a, a, l- a larger percentage of the population than your ultra rare disease. But is there a plan from a medical perspective with research and treatment? Um, kind of yes and no. So um, I actually can't remember if I mentioned this at the start, so I'll, I'll say it again. But so obviously my condition is called occipital horn syndrome. Um, it's also, it's kind of considered a milder version of something called Menkes disease. So Menkes disease is also a rare disease, but it's like mildly more well known than obviously my condition is. Not much, but it has a, a tiny bit more of awareness for that condition. So Menkes disease is, is a really not a very nice condition. You know, don't tend to live past sort of 15, 17 years of age. So hence why mine is the kind of milder variant of that. Uh, Menkes, to my knowledge, has... Um, I think it has some gene therapy going on or, or being considered. I think it's, it depends when you're when it's kind of picked up on. So, like you could have like copper replacement, but obviously that would be if you were a child or like a, a baby, really. So, you know, I'm obviously 32 now. There's not it's kind of a little bit too late for that side of things. Kind of to carry on the point of the medical professionals, there is actually one doctor actually in the states. I can never pronounce it properly. Bethesda or Bethesda. Bethesda. Oh, Bethesda. Yeah. Bethesda, Maryland. <laughs> that's it. Not far from yeah. not far from where I live. Not far from me. That's it. I always I can never yeah. I can never pronounce it properly. But yeah, um, I was actually like trying to go and see a doctor over there. Um, so hopefully after COVID has calmed down a bit, maybe that might still happen. Um, there is, you know, that's kind of the one person outside of the UK that I've managed to see that has uh, he's written a couple of papers um, on the mm-hmm. condition and also kind of some of the other links. I think he's a kind of an interesting kind of copper um, condition. So, you know, I think it would be interesting if there was more research. And I'm always very happy to, I've always said that, you know, if there was ever a clinical trial or anything kind of going on, um, I would always do it. Uh, I'm very happy to be the first person to kind of try something. You know, that's probably just how <laughs> I am in nature. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's just kind of how I am. I, I try and help. Uh, I've helped lots of medical students with, they've done like observations when I've been in hospital, you know, whether it's appointments or, different things I've always been happy to have them there I've always been an open book to ask as many questions because I the way I see it is that the medical professionals of the future the you know the people that are kind of 18 19 now at university you know for them to learn like it's all well and good doing it through textbooks and lectures but equally you know especially like the maybe the rare disease ones specifically like it's just so important for them to actually see different patients and to learn from them kind of you know, in person and see how 
their condition actually is on a day-to-day basis so I've always been very keen to to kind of do that as much as I can because the more you can kind of educate medical professionals obviously as well um, I just think it just makes such a big difference and hopefully it will help others you know there will be other people that will be diagnosed with my condition you know decades down the line I just think it's important to try and help as many as you can. You have such a positive outlook, and I find that so inspiring. But I want to make sure our community understands your condition comes with a lot of trials and tribulations. I think I read somewhere that you've never lived a day without pain. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I, I think it's uh, it's a really important kind of a conversation. I think kind of uh, on a broader level. Just let me just to kind of add this in. You know, there's not tons of men doing kind of uh, advocacy like patient advocacy so I always try and you know I've never I never really used to be involved in it but now I'm kind of involved in patient advocacy stuff I try and do as much as I can to get my voice out there hopefully kind of in a positive mindset that's how I kind of deal with my rare condition I think that everybody deals with their pain and their daily life very differently and it's all completely it's a personal choice I try and be as positive as I can I think that's kind of what's helped me over the years you know I'll be the first to admit I've had lots of different kind of times where I've been really depressed and anxious and half the time I don't think I actually realized that I actually was I think it was only really as I kind of become like a younger man I guess sort of early 20s that I really actually recognized kind of how low mentally that I was I had a real blip kind of after I guess kind of like right at the end of university and then kind of in that sort of three or four years after university which is quite a pivotal time for anybody because I think you're kind of finding your feet and trying to find your place in the workplace and in the world in in general Um, my pain and you know like I said earlier my sort of pain and fatigue and the amount of surgeries I need fluctuates all the time like hour to hour year to year day to day it's it's so up and down but I had a kind of particularly rough physical health uh, at that time I had uh, one of my kidney removed. Um, I had a real rough time with um, lots of different things. Kind of, that was when my autonomic side of things started to kick in with the with the pots and and other things going on. Um, and I I was so frustrated and so I guess that's the first time I kind of probably probably like acknowledged my health and how like how kind of frustrated and fed up I was with it. Um, you know, I wasn't angry at anybody else. I was just it was just frustrating. Uh, for me personally, I think it's probably something a lot of people will resonate with that you're kind of, you know, in your in your early 20s, well, obviously at any age, but like in, in your sort of early 20s, you're, com- you're comparing yourself to your peers. And obviously, uh, mm-hmm. I've always been so happy for all of my friends. You know, they're all doing fantastic. They're all doing really well, you know, at work and they've all got great relationships and everything. But at that point in my time, you know, I, I didn't have a partner. I didn't, I wasn't really well enough to work. You know, I was kind of stumbling through everything. I didn't really feel like life was a bit of a blur uh, then. And I think that it's something, to, it's important to talk about it because I think kind of mental health is so, like mental health and physical health are so closely linked. I think people are realising that more so now kind of due to COVID, but obviously I think mental health has become even more of a talking point. But, you know, obviously way before COVID, um, especially in rare disease, I think you know nearly everybody in rare disease will have their own mental health um, kind of battles at, at some point. And I think that my mental health reached like a real, real low point, um, and it was I didn't really recognise it. But then obviously, I, then I recognised it, and then I had uh, counselling, and I had CBT, and that was that was pretty good to start with. And then actually, really, really good. Actually, the last uh, year I've had 
um, kind of specific rare disease um, counselling, which has been really interesting because I didn't really know that existed. So kind of I'm quite lucky where mm. I live in the UK, lots of the kind of best hospitals are in Cambridge and London. So obviously that's where I've lived. So I've been very fortunate enough to be seen by those kind of rare disease places. But I guess kind of to, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but to kind of answer your question, you know, I'm probably very good at hiding it, but I'm always in pain. You know, it's just a level of how much pain I'm in and kind of pain is one thing, but fatigue I actually think is as kind of important, if not more important, because although I'd argue lots of my painkillers, even though I take really strong painkillers, I don't always feel like they do an awful lot. But, you know, there are at least options out there, whereas with fatigue, it's a, it's very different because you can't take any medication for fatigue. Like you can't you can't sleep off fatigue because that's it's different. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a real big difference between being tired and being like kind of exhausted fatigue. So, um, you know, the condition, because it affects sort of every organ internally, but also all of my joints and, you know, sleeping can be quite difficult. Quite, I'm used to kind of broken sleep and, you know, Although I hopefully come across as, you know, being very positive, like I'm still kind of arguing with my body kind of permanently. <laughs> yeah. you, you kind of, yeah, you just have to kind of make the best of it. It's some, you know, it's very, it's very frustrating. Kind of, it really catches you off guard. So, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate enough with, with my employers, you know, um, they understand what it's like to have a rare disease, obviously through their own family network. Mm-hmm. But it's just, you know, every day is so different and, uh, kind of something that I've experienced with work to kind of give you an example is that if you say you're working part-time for a company before like um, years ago I used to work in retail um, and I used to work on like a Tuesday after university I think it was and then uh, like all day on Saturday and like you can't predict when you're going to feel well like you might be working Tuesday Friday Sunday but feel awful Monday Wednesday Thursday and you just have absolutely like no idea which day you're going to have when you have a horrendous day so I think it's I think it's really common people with rare disease you know everyone has their own different lives some people work some people don't work um but you know work is just one example of it lots of rare conditions because they affect you so differently and affect so many different aspects of your life I think it's you know the pain and fatigue are just can be really overwhelming and I think that you know I I kind of probably come across as you know I am a positive person but obviously I still get frustrated with my body but you know there's lots of really positive people out there and do amazing things in rare disease but like they're all still going through so much I think that's kind of one of the summary points of what we spoke about earlier is it just because something's kind of hidden you don't always know what someone's going through and just because you know I, I do it all the time and there's thousands of people that will be doing the same you know I can be out with with my friends or my family or my partner um and you, you probably may or may not even recognize it but like I can still do some of the normal things that I used to or still do them but it's just you know I'm putting a brave face in it where you know inside I probably feel horrendous so it's just yeah it's just a real battle and you just have to kind of take um each day as, you, as it comes really thank you for sharing that and that's what makes your positivity all the more inspiring because you know, I, I read about your your story and your daily struggles, and now our community knows. And it's a battle. I would imagine it's a battle day in and day out. And it's and it's a good point that you mentioned that it's not just the physical; it's the mental as well. And there are with any disorder, rare or or otherwise, there are daily struggles. And um, 
we need to support each other and love one another and encourage that positivity. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I know it's <laughs> it's hard, and I you know I see it having a family member affected, and um, you know it's it's really inspiring to have people like you who are willing to share their story, talk about their daily struggles, talk about all the adversity they face, but then also bring it from a very um, positive with a positive mindset. And I think that's so inspiring. So I, I am curious, you you know, you are a young man who is willing to share his story with the hope of inspiring. Was there a moment where you said to yourself, I need to do this. I need to speak up. I need to help others with my message. Yeah, I think it probably actually came. So uh, I've been volunteering for the sort of charity side of Great Ormond Street Hospital. So obviously it's a huge hospital in the UK. It's obviously very famous for kind of rare disease. That's the that's the main kind of, well, there's, there's that hospital and there's a hospital in Birmingham, which has quite, quite a big rare disease presence for kind of the paediatric side. But obviously because I spent so much time at Great Ormond Street as a child and as a teenager, I really wanted to give something back. So I thought, you know, at that time, I had so much time to give and volunteering was kind of the best way in. And I think that I didn't really plan this sort of public speaking thing kind of came obviously through the hospital. So as I mentioned, I was involved in a couple of different kind of panels and groups when I was a bit younger at the hospital. And then obviously they asked me to do one of the talks. So I, I said, yes, didn't really, that's kind of aside from speaking at kind of university and things, that was the first real kind of public speaker um, engagement that I had. Um, and and you know, absolutely like relish the opportunity to do it I'm you know I'm a confident person I like speaking it's it didn't really find it too kind of overwhelming but it was just it was a really interesting opportunity to be able to kind of share some of my experiences about obviously being at the hospital growing up um but obviously also talking a bit about my rare disease and kind of like kind of how we've discussed you know some of the 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 sort of day-to-day living and some of the aspects of it um and then you know that that was the, you know, I did the first one, yeah, seven or eight years ago now. Didn't, at the time, kind of didn't really think too much of it, but then obviously got asked to do quite a few more, which was uh, a compliment. It was nice to kind of be representing the charity and doing different things. Some of them were for kind of big, like black tie events where different kind of big commercial companies, lots of sort of banking and law firms picked Great Ormond Street as their sort of charity of the year. So I used to go and do like an after dinner talk. Um, Absolutely loved it. Really kind of got the buzz for doing the sort of speaker side of things. And then obviously, uh, as I mentioned earlier, obviously I lived in Cambridge for a long time. Uh, Obviously Cambridge, London, Oxford are kind of our equivalent of Boston and San Francisco, I guess, in, in the States for kind of rare disease. So like lots mm-hmm. of different rare disease events that were going on, uh, kind of started to go to some of the charity events and some of the kind of other events in rare disease, applied to do a couple of talks there. And obviously then that kind of kicked off and then started to do quite a lot. So it kind of really became, uh, I guess, involved in, in rare disease sort of speaking and advocacy. Um, and then I guess obviously uh, obviously working through the magazine, I've started to do some for the magazine. And then I also kind of alongside the magazine, you know, I've done a few different projects with pharmaceutical companies so um that's been that's been really cool as well so yeah lots of lots of different things kind of going on and I didn't really kind of uh you know when I was at university I didn't really think about kind of um necessarily working in rare disease I think it's kind of life circumstances and different things have kind of led me to that like I'm I'm not a religious person as such but I kind of I do agree I do kind of see a lot in kind of like karma and fate and destiny that kind of thing so I, I felt like I was probably destined to do something in in rare disease and hopefully kind of 
through the things that I do with the magazine and, and obviously broadly with the charity side of things at Great Ormond Street. And I'm a, a trustee for a bladder charity for the the CAFTA sort of procedure that I had done many years ago. So hopefully kind of through a, a variety of the different channels of mm-hmm. things that I do, you know, hopefully, it, you know, even if it just helps one person or, you know, a few other young men that are like not talking about their health or if they can find one thing useful, that's kind of to me, that's cool. Like that's that's tick the box and it makes it worthwhile. Well, I think you're affecting or you're positively impacting more people than you know. Sharing your message is so powerful and the advocacy work you're doing is, I mean, it's inspired me and um, I think it's going to inspire our community when they hear this podcast. So your work is, your advocacy and your public speaking is is clearly, it's clearly helping others, inspiring others. What has this done for you? Um, I think just kind of like obviously outside of all the other things that we've mentioned, I think obviously the I guess the, the social side of things has been really good because you know I, I've got a great circle of friends you know which I'm I'm thankful for. But I guess having fr- having the friends that I've made in rare disease, you know, some of them in, are in the UK, some of them you know f- friends that I've met online in America and different places and through work and such. So you know I've met some really cool people and so yeah, it's just I think it's socially it's been really good and I think it's been a way so that obviously when I was growing up I kind of just took being ill for granted and didn't really think much of it and then I kind of as I've got older I've reflected you know I never really well I suppose I I did feel like kind of a bit of the odd one out kind of when I was at school because obviously I was missing so much school and I I did feel a bit different and kind of growing up but then now like obviously the more people that I've spoken to I think it's kind of put life in perspective you know that there were when I was when I was growing up, there were millions of other people kind of around the world that were going through some of the same things that I was. So I think that I've just learned so much, and you know, socially it's been excellent. But also, I've just learned so much from from other people, and I, I think it's given my life um, like a real purpose. What is your hope for the for the rare disorder community? Are there any long term things in your mind that you you hope that your work will inspire or that will bring about positive change? I mean, it's a, it's probably a few things. Probably from maybe from like a personal side of things. Um, you know, I I hope that I've already touched upon it quite a lot. I think it's two two areas that I've always been really wanted to make a difference is is in kind of education and work. So, you know, that's the two biggest battles I think that most people with a rare disease will go through. Whether you know, getting their um, education sort of institutes to understand about living with a rare disease and obviously at work as well you know there's so many people that have a rare disease that probably want to work but are unable to find the right employer you know I've been there it's horrible it's not very nice to feel kind of outcasted I think that's a real area to kind of improve on you know rare disease like the sort of I guess from a kind of like government like policy side of things I think uh, in the UK it's it's fairly good you know maybe I'm slightly blindsided by the fact that you know I've always been able to access kind of the right specialists and things and it's it's mm-hmm. kind of a bit of a postcode lottery if that makes sense so like where where you live in the UK can sometimes impact where you live so I think that you know I'm very lucky that I've always lived you know in, in Cambridge London where kind of the big kind of rare disease centres are but if you were living kind of very remotely you know in in the north of England or in Scotland or Wales the kind of the healthcare isn't always as good so hopefully a bit more kind of healthcare uh, equality would be good as well. How can our listeners support the rare disease community? Yeah obviously check out the magazine if you if you can um, I guess from a from a different way it's obviously just look at different 
blogs so like search for search for different rare diseases online obviously lots of people have their own uh, patient blogs whether that's their own personal one or through charities check out like i mean on on social media like kind of on instagram and twitter and things literally just search hashtag rare disease and see kind of what comes up and have a look through some of the through some of the posts and see what goes on like obviously a big date in the calendar for rare disease day um is on the february the 28th that's kind of globally recognized um as rare disease day so obviously that's a great time to you know even if you don't have a rare disease kind of see what's going on a few different sort of celebrities and things have supported over the years and try and um kind of point people in the right direction so yeah that's that's always good yeah i guess just and also maybe like just in the in the community as well so like quite often you know I don't, i'm sure it's the same where you are but like in a lot of like supermarkets and then and big kind of sporting events there's often people fundraising with a bucket you know so if you're mm-hmm. if you're if you're if at a sports game or if you're in a supermarket and there's a one at the end of the counter you know maybe donate to, to charities that you can you know i'm sure lots of your you know lots of my friends are always uh, fundraising for something you know my friends that don't have a rare disease but they're fundraising for different charities kind of close to them obviously lots of charities kind of globally have really struggled during covid because because people aren't fundraising as much you know uh, lots of you know obviously people used to do lots of like skydiving and marathons and things for for different charities obviously that's come to like a bit of a halt for the last few months so yeah kind of being brutally honest obviously financially supporting different charities Mm -hmm. and organizations is always 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 important Agreed. Yeah. And hopefully we'll be able to return to all those those fun, exciting charity events. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> and do you have a parting message for our community? Obviously, firstly, thank you very much for listening. Uh, you know, it's, I always appreciate people taking the time to listen. And, you know, hopefully it's not just about me. It's about some of the other kind of causes and things, you know, that happen in rare disease. I guess from like a, you know, from my own personal perspective, just to kind of summarize, you know, if you, if you know somebody with a rare disease or you have a rare disease yourself, like it's, it sounds really, really stupid, I guess to say, but just like, I always try and see the best in everything. So I've, you know, I've been really, really low mentally, but I've kind of managed to kind of get a, a hold of that and um, just try and see each day as it comes, you know, things will change and like you know things can get better so like just keep kind of keep keep plugging away keep doing what you can um i think it's just really important as well to kind of take on as many hobbies and and interests as you can because i think i really underestimated how important it is to have as many different hobbies and many different distractions as you can and also you know engage with the rare disease community as much as you want um because you know, I, I find it really beneficial speaking to to different people and just do as much as you, you you can and but also it's important to not compare yourself as well so don't compare yourself to your your healthy friends but equally you know just because someone has the same rare disease as you it, it might affect them completely differently so don't don't compare yourself constantly do do your own thing but kind of engage with the, the rare disease community as much as you can that's a wonderful message Well, this is Difference Makers, and you, David, are a real difference maker. Thank you for sharing your work with our community, and thank you for inspiring us. Oh, thank you very much for having me here. Um, Absolutely, real pleasure to, to speak to everyone. On behalf of Difference Makers Global Community, I want to thank you for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about today's guest, visit differencemakers.org. There you'll find a dedicated page for each of our Difference Makers and a link to their charity's website, where you can learn more about their inspiring work and support the mission. And for our readers out there, I have two books that I wrote that I'd love for you to check out. 
Crossing America for a Cure, and Running the Coast for a Cure. These books chronicle charity adventures I did in honor of my niece, Jenna, who was born with a rare neurological disorder called Sturge-Weber syndrome. Both books can be purchased on Amazon.com, and all profits from book sales are donated to Sturge-Weber Research. Thanks again for listening, and remember, in each of us is the power to make a difference.